just sang Ain't No Grave. Are you enjoying church? That's good stuff. I mean, you don't want to miss that. That warms you up on a chilly day, right? That's just what we need. That is great, great, great. A lot of you have heard in the news about uh, Israel uh, being attacked and uh, some of their people being taken into captivity back into Gaza. And so please pray for Israel uh, as they go through all that. And uh, we've seen this happen over and over and over again. And so keep them in your prayers. I, I was not going to talk about it, but then a lot of people have been asking me uh, about my elk hunt. About a week and a half, I returned uh, from an elk hunt. And as you could probably guess, I did not do that well. Or I would have put something on the internet or something, you know. And uh, didn't do so great. Um, we were out there. The way, here's the way this works. Is you go out west and you pick a state and then you apply for a tag to hunt in an area. It's called a game unit. So... Um, we didn't get picked for any game unit, and so we didn't get drawn, even though we applied. And so later, John and I, John Wookie from our church, and I decided, well, we'll just go to Colorado. There's a couple of units that you don't uh, need to be drawn for. You can go buy a license, and just anybody can hunt there. You don't have to be drawn. Those aren't as good units, I found out. But anyway, and so we decided to do that. And here's the deal. This is my third year bow hunting for elk in the Rocky Mountains. And I love the Rocky Mountains. I love hiking all over the Rocky Mountains. But this time, I hunted for over a week. I did not even see an elk. In the hunting world, this is bad. All right, so not even seeing it. I never heard an elk bugle, and that's the main way you hunt elk is to figure out kind of where they're at because it's a big, big place. And so I never heard a bugle, never saw an elk. It just wasn't happening. Actually, John, who I went with, who, by the way, has killed many elk, except for the three times when he's been with me. I'm sure there's no connection there, but that's the reality of the situation. But uh, we were there. He, he and Jesse, which is Jake's, his oldest son, Jake's older brother. There's Jake right over there. Yeah, he saw, they saw two, they, they both saw a bull. The bull didn't bugle, but the bull was Barking, which I didn't even know a bull could make that noise. But I was the closest to the bull. I heard the bull. I knew the bull was there on the other side of this thicket. You know, I knew he was there. Never saw him. Never got a shot. Never nothing. But they saw him. So they saw one elk. And then later, Jesse saw another tail of an elk going over a ridge. I mean, that was it for a week of hunting. But let me just contrast that with another trip that happened for somebody in our church family. Uh, a guy named Dan Kowalowski was in the first service sitting back there. He also applied for tags to get drawn, didn't get drawn just like us, but he also applied for a trophy unit, which normally you have to, it, it takes years to get one of these. He got selected. He was so surprised he called uh, the game management there in Wyoming and said, hey, uh, they say I just got this. Uh, trophy area is that true and they're like where are you from and he's like Ohio he's like yeah you got it I don't know how you got it but you got it and you better enjoy it because you're probably never get another one you know so they kind of did that to him and so Daniel he decides hey this is a once in a lifetime opportunity I have a trophy unit to bow hunt elk in and so he gets Jake and Troy Clapp who was in our service last time to go with them even though they don't have tags they can't even hunt but he gets them to go with him because it's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. And here's what happens with him. <laughs> See, that is an elk. See, that's what's supposed to happen with me. 
But that's what uh, Dan got. And then his partners in crime here are the uh, Jake and Troy who went with him. That, that's a, a good-sized elk with massive, uh, massive horns. They're great stuff, antlers, good, great stuff. Anyway, so I, I came up empty, totally empty. But here's the deal. Every time I go, I learn something. Like when I should have killed multiple elk, although I can only kill one, would have been my very first time, but I, I messed that up. But anyway, every time I learn more, this time I don't even see them. That's the way it goes. But I think this is a little bit of what David's experience. I'm waiting, I'm hunting, I'm waiting to someday be able to kill an elk with a bow. Hasn't happened yet. Think about David. We started his series a, a few, well, three weeks ago. And the reason we're studying David is because besides Jesus Christ, David is the most mentioned person in the Bible. There's 60 chapters of the Bible that tell his story of his life, and he's mentioned over 50 times in the New Testament. And so we want to study David, but as we study David, we realize that David is waiting for something. Remember, he's been anointed king. The story started with a guy named Samuel, and Samuel is the last judge, and judges were leaders of Israel that came on the scene after uh, they were delivered from slavery, 400 years of slavery in Egypt. They went into the wilderness for 40 years, entered the promised land, but then they would keep drifting from God, and God would raise up a leader called a judge. There's a whole book called Judges. He would raise up a leader, and they would deliver the people. they turned back to God. But then after that judge died, they had sort of then drift away from God again. And then when it got really bad because they were conquered by their neighbors, they would cry out to God again. God would deliver them through another leader. Samuel is the last judge. He's the last leader of this type. And as he's getting old, the people realize he's going to die someday. And they decide, hey, we want a king. Israel, the Israelite people, they're saying, we want a king like all the nations around us, somebody who will lead us into battle. We want a king to help keep us out of this cycle of drifting and coming back to you. So God tells Samuel to anoint a king. And the first king that God chose was a guy named Saul. And Saul was a tall guy, a big guy from the tribe of Benjamin. And the problem was Saul was disobedient to God. And so after years of being disobedient to God, actually he starts acting like the kings and the nations all around him, which is not what God wanted. And so then God says, hey, Samuel, because Samuel's still alive. He says, Samuel, I want you to anoint someone else as king. And Samuel's bummed over the whole Saul thing. Saul's not following God. Samuel can't believe it. And God says, hey, Samuel, quit grieving over Saul. You know, he is who he is. I picked somebody else. And it's you need to go to Bethlehem and look at the sons of a man named Jesse. And he goes there, and Jesse has a bunch of sons, eight. And he's looking at them, and it's not this one, not this. Although they're impressive-looking guys, surely this is the guy. Nope, 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 nope. Anymore? Yeah, well, we got the runt of the litter. You know, he's out tending sheep. We'll go get him. That's David. Saul anoints him with oil and says, you're going to be the future king. Well, David at this point is like 15 years old. And so then Saul leaves, and then the family's like kind of over the shock, but Saul's still on the throne, so nothing has really changed. David's just a, a young man, and so life goes back to normal. David goes back to tending his sheep. Now Saul's, or David's brothers 
end up going into military service. That would happen about, at about 20 years of age in ancient Israel. So there in military service, David's father calls David, says, hey, leave the sheep. I'm going to give you some provisions. Take them to your brothers who are in a battle with the Philistines. They're kind of in a standoff. They've been there for a while. Take these provisions to your brothers. While David takes the provisions to his brothers, that's the same time that these two armies are camped on like two ridges, and there's a valley in the middle, and the Philistines have a champion, a huge man, named Goliath. And Goliath is challenging all of Israel to get their best man to come and fight him one-on-one, and that will decide the battle, and we don't all have to kill each other. Just bring your best guy. And day after day after day, Goliath goes down into the valley and shouts at the army of Israel, defying God, defying them, and saying, give me your best man. David hears this, and this riles David up. And so David says, I'll do it. And everybody's like, what? What are you talking? You'll do it. And so they bring him to Saul, who should have been the guy that would do it, but Saul didn't want to do it. And so they, they, Saul tries to give him his armor, but you know he's like, no, I, I don't, I'm not re- really used to this stuff. And David just has this sling that he used as a shepherd, which is two straps of leather with a pouch. And he goes and he confronts Goliath. You know the story. He throws one rock. The first rock hits Goliath in the forehead. It kills him. He falls down. David runs on over, jumps on top of Goliath, pulls out Goliath's own sword, chops his head off, and then the Israeli army, just they just start attacking, and the Philistines flee, and it's a huge victory. And all of a sudden, in one day, David goes from an unknown teenager, he goes viral in Israel. Everybody knows his name. Everybody knows he's killed Goliath. So even though he's young, Saul brings him in kind of into his inner circle, and David becomes the captain of King Saul's bodyguard. And so not only that, Saul gives David one of his daughters, actually first one, but no, then the other one, gives a daughter to David. So he's a son-in-law of the king. And so everything's going pretty good except for one problem. Saul who at this point probably does not know anything about David's anointing, Saul becomes super jealous of David because David is more popular in Israel than King Saul is. And in his jealousy, a couple of times, because he's in close contact with David, he tries to kill David with a spear. David gets away, but then finally David realizes, hey, I need to get out of here. Because if I don't, he's going to kill me. You know, he's jealous. And David goes on the run. So here's David. He's been told by the judge Samuel, who's also the last judge and kind of the first prophet, that, hey, you're going to be the next king. But nothing happened. And now he's killed Goliath and everything's great now. But King Saul hates him. And so he goes on the run. And this period lasts for about 10 years of his life. He's anointed king, but he's not crowned king, and the one who has been anointed and crowned king is trying to kill him. And so David's on the run. 
And we can stop right there and realize that sometimes there's a lesson here. This is all written for us as an example. Sometimes God makes us wait for the good things that he wants to give us. Sometimes we know God has a plan for our lives. I know about this, you know, and, but sometimes we have to wait and trust God for the good things that he wants to give us without taking matters into our own hands. And this is what David learns during this phase of his life. So he's on the run for about 10 years. Now, David, God uses this time in David's life to purge and refine David. The first thing David does is he runs to a town, he flees Saul to a town called Nob, just Nob. What's significant about this little town called Nob is that it's where the tabernacle of the Lord is. And remember, during their 40 years of wandering in the desert, they had this tent thing they called the tabernacle. It's the predecessor to the temple. They had this movable temple made like a tent, and that's kind of where the presence of God was, and they did some special things. All this is stuff God told them to do. And so that's where the old retired tabernacle resides, and there's a bunch of priests in that city. David goes there, and then the main priest that's there, he talks to him. That's Ahimelech. So he goes there and meets with the highest priest, Ahimelech, and Ahimelech's like, what, what are you doing? Why are you alone? Where's the, you know, your contingent of the army that Saul gave you? What's going on? Why are you by yourself? And David lies to Ahimelech, which turns out to have super tragic consequences before we're done today. He lies to the priest, and he says, hey, king, he's actually on the run from the king, but he tells Ahimelech, well, actually, King Saul sent me on an urgent mission, and it was so urgent, I didn't have time to get provisions, I didn't have time to bring food, and I didn't even have time to get my weapons together. So he says, is there any food? And Ahimelech says, well, we don't have any extra food around. All we have, what we do have, is the food that we put before the Lord in the tabernacle. So what's happening there is in this tent, every week, they would put out 12 loaves before God. And each loaf represented one of the tribes of Israel. And then it would stay there for a week, and then they would take it away, and they would bake fresh loaves. And on the Sabbath, they'd put the fresh loaves out. Well, all they have there is the old loaves from the previous week that they had put before the temple. They're called the bread of presence or the show bread. It's called different things in the Old Testament. But the priests, and actually the law says only priests can eat the old bread. That's part of their provision. But David's in big need. The priest sees David as serving Saul. And so he gives David some of the bread even though technically David wasn't supposed to be eating that, he did. And so then, after he gets bread, David says, well, do you have any weapons here? And these are a bunch of priests. They don't have weapons. But he realized, Ahimelech says, oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah, we do have one weapon. We have the sword of Goliath, the guy you killed. And this would have been about seven years prior. And so David's like, okay, yeah, that sword, give it to me. Apparently what happened after David killed Goliath with his own, you know, killed him and then cut his head off with his own sword, he must have gone to the tabernacle and offered Goliath's sword as a sacrifice or an offering 
to God. Well, they didn't know what to do with that, so that's been hanging around all this time. They give it to David. And so then David realizes that as he's getting all these provisions, there's another character that's there in Nob, and his name is Doeg. And Doeg is an Edomite, but he's a servant of Saul, kind of his head shepherd guy, and he's probably got a bunch of men with him. But Doeg is kind of seeing all this happen. And David knows, hey, I got to get out of here. I'm still in Saul's territory. I need to flee to another country. I'm going to go to the land of the Philistines. And all of a sudden, not only is David lying, we see that David is kind of slipping a little bit, it seems like, in trusting God. I mean, he killed Goliath with a slingshot. But he's there at Nob, lying to the priest, asking for weapons and food. You know, doesn't seem to be trusting God the same way he did before. Who knows? But he realizes, hey, I got to get out of Dodge. I need to get out of town. Now, the reason I told you that story is because when David ate that bread, that actually comes up in the New Testament. Jesus is with his disciples And it's on a Sabbath day. And on a Sabbath day, you're not supposed to do any work. Like you're not supposed to do normal work of harvesting or anything else. Well, David and his, or Jesus and his disciples are walking along and Jesus is teaching them. They happen to be going through a grain field and they're hungry. And as they pass through the grain field, they just drop their hands and pick off the grain that's on top of the stalk that they're walking through. So they're just kind of doing this as they go, and they're having trail mix as Jesus is teaching them, you know, and everything's hunky-dory. But then the Pharisees come, and they accuse Jesus, you and your followers have broken the Sabbath. What we do? You're harvesting. You're doing the work of harvesting. You know, that's what they called the just kind of skimming off, you know, some, some, some grain to eat. And so Jesus, in response to them, brings up this story of David to justify his actions. He basically says, look, you guys think David is the greatest thing since sliced bread. And he was the greatest king of Israel. But David went in on the Sabbath and ate the showbread, the the old bread that only priests were allowed to eat. But you give David a pass because David was hungry. Here I am, the son of God, the Messiah from David's line, king of the universe, and I'm walking with my followers, and they're just eating a little bit as we go, as I'm instructing them, and you're accusing my followers of breaking the Sabbath, but you're giving David a pass, and basically he uses that illustration from David's life to show them that they were being judgmental and hypocritical. So now, fast forward. Okay, we're done with that. So he's done at Nob, and David, he's all alone. He realizes, hey, I need to get out of here, and so I need to get out of Saul's reach. And so then he goes to another town, and the town is called Gath, and that's a Philistine town. And we start understanding that David's not making a lot of great decisions here. This is not a smart move. Think about it. He goes to Nob. He gets some bread, He gets Goliath's sword. He straps on Goliath's sword, and then he decides he's going to lay low in the nearest Philistine town. Unfortunately, Gath has come up before because Gath is the hometown of Goliath. 
This is not a smart move. I'm going to strap on Goliath's sword. He says there's none like it. I'm going to go to this Philistine town, which happens to be Goliath's hometown, and I'm going to lay low and nobody's going to notice that I'm there. That did not happen. He went there. The people immediately noticed exactly who he was, and he's carrying Goliath's sword. They grab him, and they take him to the king of Gath, and this is a Philistine guy named Achish. And so they bring him to Achish. David realizes that he's made a bad move, and he's caught, and he, he'll likely be killed. So to get out of the jam that he's in, David starts acting like he's insane. He resorts to acting like he's out of his mind. And he starts letting spit drool down into his beard. He starts doing weird things. He goes up to the city gate and he starts clawing it. And these guys, you know, bring David in front of King Achish. And he's like, this guy's out of his mind. Yeah, it might be David, but the guy's nuts. Hey, don't I have enough crazy people in Gath already that you're bringing me another one, David? Get rid of this guy. And so David escapes. David's out of there after acting like he's insane, and, uh, and he goes. But even the people of the Philistines in Gath know the song of David. We've already covered that. The other guys did. Remember Samuel 21, 11. But the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David, the king of the land? Did they not sing of this one as they dance, saying, Saul has slain his thousands, David his ten thousands? Even... The, even these Philistines in Gath know about the song in Israel that caused Saul to be so jealous after David killed Goliath. So David, after acting insane, he escapes to a cave of Adullam. And in this cave, it's only significant because there, David wrote about 75% of the Psalms in the book of Psalms in the Old Testament. And while in the cave of Abdullam, David wrote some of those songs. But while he's there, he's all alone, he's writing these songs to God, he's reflecting, he's focused on God, and while he's there, his brothers come and join him. Remember, he's got seven brothers. They come and join David. And not only that, other people, drifters, start joining David when he's all alone hiding out in this cave. And finally, it says, the Bible says the distressed or people in debt or people who are discontent, you know, anybody's got a problem, anybody who's an outcast, anybody who's drifting, they started joining themselves with David. Pretty soon, David has 400 men with him, and soon it'll grow to 600 men. So David and these 400 men are there, and then, and the brothers are there, and you're thinking, oh, the brothers finally appreciate David, but it, and, and they do, because they're willing to follow David, but it also, because the brothers realize they're not safe either. Saul's, you know, Saul's trying to kill him, and his family's probably not safe. While they're there, he's got 400 guys. David realizes his parents are in danger. So then he decides to take his parents across the Dead Sea or around the Dead Sea. They probably didn't cross it. They go around the Dead Sea to the land of Moab, which is Israel's enemy on the other side. Israel's between the Philistines and the Moabites. He goes to the Moabites on the east side of the Dead Sea, and he approaches the king there, who's an enemy of Israel, and basically asks the king 
to give his parents protection until he figures out what, what God's going to do for him. Again, David seems to be confused. What's going on? I'm waiting, but I'm not king yet. You know, everybody's, you know, I'm, I'm being chased. I'm being hunted down by my own king. All this is happening. And you might wonder, why would David do that? Why would David go to the Moabites? Well, if you've listened carefully last year, David is part Moabite. If you remember the story of Ruth, there's a whole book in the Bible about Ruth, she was an Israel, uh, she was married, she was a Moabite who came back into Israel and ended up marrying, there's a whole story to this, but married Boaz, remember the guy with the cool name. He, she married Boaz, and then her and Boaz um, had a child. What was that child's name? Uh, anyway, I, I don't remember. But anyway, a guy, and then that person had Jesse, and Jesse is the father of David, Obed. So Boaz marries Ruth, the Moabite. They have Obed. Obed has Jesse. Jesse is David's father. So Jesse takes his parents, which his parents you know, are related to the Moabites, and they watch him, and everything's good. Then David, boy, I kind of got lost track there, so are you with me? Hey, by the way, we're covering four chapters today, so are you with me? Don't be zoning out on me now. We're halfway through. Stick with me, all right? So he leaves Moab. He goes back to the other side of the Dead Sea into the wilderness. This is land that's technically owned by Judah and Israel, but really it's no man's land. And he hides up in a stronghold. This could be the stronghold that later becomes Masada. It kind of looks like this. I think we have it up there. So that's Masada, but Masada wasn't built yet. But that could be the stronghold where David's at. And then a prophet named Gad, who's first time he shows up, comes and tells David, no, you need to go back to Judah. And so David does that. So as David's doing all this, in the meantime, King Saul is still trying to kill David. And Saul's paranoia and his insecurity is causing him to kind of freak out over the whole David thing. The next thing is Saul's in a place called Gibeah, and then he hears where David is in the stronghold. And I want to pick up the reading there in 1 Samuel 22.6. Are you still with me? All right. 1 Samuel 22.6. Then Saul heard that David and the men who were with him had been discovered. Now Saul was sitting in Gibeah under the tamarisk tree on the height with his spear in his hand. And all his servants were standing around him. Saul said to his servants who stood around him, Hear now, O Benjamites. Saul's from the tribe of Benjamin, one of the twelve tribes. David's from the tribe of Judah where the Messiah is supposed to come from. And so he's basically appealing to their tribal loyalties. Hear now, O Benjamites. Well, and he, he's, he hates David so much, he can't even say David's name. Hear now, O Benjamites. Will the son of Jesse also give to all of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? For all of you have conspired against me so that there is no one who discloses to me when my son, he's talking about Jonathan, makes a covenant with the son of David, talking about Jesse, uh, talking about David, son of Jesse, 
And there's none of you who's sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in ambush as it is this day. All right? Saul's son Jonathan and David are friends. And they've met and, and Jonathan's tried to help David escape his dad a few times. Now Saul hears about all that and he's accusing all of his followers, you guys are all traitors. He's kind of becoming unhinged. Then Doeg, the Edomite, this is the guy that was in Nob when David got his bread and sword. Then Doeg, the Edomite, who was standing by the servants of Saul, said, I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob and to Ahimelech and the sons of Ahitub. He inquired of the Lord for him, gave him provisions, and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. Then the king sent someone to summon Ahimelech, the priest, the son of Ahitub, and his father's household, and the priests who were in Nob, and all of them came to the king. Saul said, listen now, son of Ahitub. And he answered, here I am, my lord. Saul then said to him, why have you and the son of Jesse conspired against me, that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him? so that he'd rise up against me by lying in ambush as it is this day. So Ahimelech doesn't know anything about this. He just knows David's one of Saul's men. He says, Then Ahimelech answered the king and said, And who among all your servants is as faithful as David, even the king's son-in-law, who is captain over your guard and is honored in your house? Did I just begin to inquire of God for him today? Far be it from me. Do not let the king impute anything to his servants or any of the household of my father. For your servant knows nothing of this whole affair. The guy's totally innocent. But the king said, you shall surely die. Ahimelech, you and all your father's household. And the king said to the guards who were attending him, turn around and put the priests of the Lord to death. Because their hand is also is with David, and because they knew that he was fleeing and did not reveal it to me, which, which is not true. But the servants of the king were not willing to put forth their hand to attack the priests of the Lord. So these servants of David realize, hey, God's law, God's truth, trumps Saul's commands, so they don't do it. Then the king said to Doeg, you turn around and attack the priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned around and attacked the priests. And he killed that day 85 men who wore the linen ephod. That's just 85 priests. And, and he struck Nob, the city of the priests, with the edge of the sword. Both men and women, children and infants. Also oxen, donkeys, and sheep he struck with the edge of the sword. But one son of Ahimelech, son of Ahitub, named Abiathar escaped and fled after David. Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priest of the Lord. Then David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he'd surely tell Saul, I've brought about the death of every person in your father's household. Stay with me. Do not be afraid. For he who seeks my life seeks your life. For you are safe with me. So this Abiathar, one guy left, he escapes 
this massacre at Nob, you know, that Saul wrecks on all the priests. And he escapes, we find out, with the, the ephod, uh, you know, but that's a whole other thing. But he takes some things that were in the tabernacle with him. Now, in the meantime, David's still, he's still out in the wilderness. And where he is, there's a nearby town called Keilah. And he hears from the local people that Keilah is being attacked by the Philistines. So David, with Abiathar, they seek what, the God, that what God would have them to do. And so David, through Abiathar, is asking God, should I go try to save this town, Keilah? And God says, yeah. And so David, he gathers his men. He says, hey, uh, there's this town. It's not that far away. We're going to go over there, and we're going to save it. They're, being, they're under attack from the Philistines right now. It's a walled city. And the men are like, David's men are like, whoa, what? what? Go attack the we, we're, we got Saul hot on our heels. We're barely surviving in our own country. And now you want us to go pick a fight with the Philistines. We will be crushed in between the Philistines and Saul's people. No, this doesn't make any sense. We don't want to do this. And so David gets Abiathar and they, he talks again. Hey, can you ask God one more time? Are we sure this is what we want to do? And God says, yeah, do it. I'm going to give you victory. And so David convinces his men. They go to Keilah. Sure enough, they defeat the Philistines. They plunder them. And there's rejoicing. But because of that, King Saul hears that David's in Keilah. So Saul gets a huge army together. And they're going to go to this walled city named Keilah. And they're going to lay siege to it. That means surround it and starve it out. Because that's where David's at. And so David's people, they hear this. And then David doesn't know what to do. So again, he goes to God and he says, okay, God, do I stay here or do I go? Because this is a walled city. We could last for a long time. And, you know, do I stay here or not? And God says, no, no, don't stay. And he goes, and David also asks, you know, if I stay here and Saul shows up and surrounds the city, will the people in Keilah, will they protect me? Will they stand with me or will they turn me over? And God says, they will turn you over which is kind of a bummer. I mean, he just saved them. And God's saying, yeah, if your city's under siege, they're going to give you up before they start starving to death. And so David flees again. And, then, and when Saul realizes David's gone, Saul just goes back home. But then David with his 600 men go to the wilderness of Ziph. And the only significant thing that happened there is basically Jonathan comes and finds David. And Jonathan sort of renews their friendship and his commitment to David. And this is actually the last time that Jonathan and David talk before Jonathan is killed in battle later. Now, David, it's like he can't catch a break. Now he's in this other wilderness area. All this is within kind of greater Judah, which is David's tribe south of the rest of Israel. But the people of Ziph, the wilderness, the local people... They go to Saul and say, we know where David's hiding. So everybody's just turning David in. And Saul hears that. And so he's gonna, he goes to catch up to David. And actually, he uses the Ziphites as spies. And he catches up to David. There's actually only a hill between Saul's huge army and David's 600. And Saul splits his forces to surround David. He knows he's there. But right as that's going to happen and David's going to be caught, Saul gets word that the Philistines 
have made another raid and he can cut them off. So Saul leaves David to cut off the Philistines in battle. David then, are, are you with me? Yeah. David then, he flees to another place that's pretty well known. Some of you have even heard of it. He goes to a place called En Gedi. En Gedi is on the western shore of the, the Dead Sea. And, and what's significant about En Gedi is it's a canyon with fresh water there. So En Gedi means, translated as, spring of the wild goats. And I've been there, and you can see the wild goats now. They're actually ibexes, but you can see them. And so it's a canyon that drops down, a spring drops down with a river, and it flows to the Dead Sea. And you might wonder, why there? Because it seems like a pretty obvious place. There's fresh water there. This is a pretty barren land. But that's why. His, he's been hiding out in the wilderness. You have 600 men. One of your biggest needs is going to be water. In Gedi has water. And you might wonder, well, what about the Dead Sea? I mean, you're going around, you know, this huge lake, the Dead Sea. Well, the Dead Sea is not only the lowest place on earth, but it's also 34.5% salinity. Very, very salty. Compare that to the Atlantic Ocean, 3.5% salinity. So the Dead Sea is 8 to 10 times more salty than the Atlantic Ocean. That doesn't help you. It doesn't help you with water. But En Gedi does, so that's where they go. And while they're at En Gedi, it sets up one of the most dramatic moments in all of David's life that we're going to try to cover before we're done. Are you with me? All right. And this is where David spares Saul's life. The reason God has people like David and people like you and me wait for his good things is often because we are not prepared yet. And that's what's going on in David's life. Saul hears, predictably, again, ratted out, Saul hears that David's at En Gedi. And this time Saul does something else. He doesn't grab his whole army. He grabs his delta force. 300 chosen warriors he goes, and they go down to get David. They get there at En Gedi. They're searching for David. They can't find him. And right at the most kind of important part, as they're you know, searching out En Gedi, Saul has to go. Nature calls. <laughs> Has that ever happened to you? Something really important happening and all of a sudden you have to go? And this happened to As a matter of fact, John's not here who I went hunting with and neither is his son Jesse, so I'll tell you a story. Jake, don't tell him. So anyway, <laughs> one day we're hunting. We're all over the mountains. I mean, we leave like at 3.30 in the morning. It's 20 degrees. It's super cold. You know, and we, we're out on this mountain. It's, it's early afternoon. And Jesse sees the tail of an elk go over a ridge. And so we move up in position. Now, this whole hunting, every day we're hunting, we're checking wind. You know, it's a little powder, and you constantly check the wind. Which way is the wind blowing? Because the elk will smell you before they can see you, and you can't smell them that easily. And so, although you can, but you, you know, and so you constantly checking wind. So we get up in position. John's going to hang back and call. 
Jesse's in kind of right where he saw him go over, but he also has a shooting lane because this is bow hunting. You, gotta have a, you can't shoot through brush because a lot of times elk will work around upwind, or I'm sorry, downwind, so they can smell you and then they don't have to investigate. So, so Jesse's set up a perfect place. I go on the other side. I'm over here, and there's a crosswind. We're checking the wind. And then it happened. I had to go. I mean, I had to go bad. I mean, it was bad. I, I normally am not like this. Never happened to me while I was hunting before. I had to go. I have my pack. I've been sitting there. I have a great lane. Everything's looking good. The wind's shifting this way. I can barely see Jesse. He's about 50 yards away. I know John's back behind him. They're calling. We're waiting. You know, I've been there 20 minutes or so, and all of a sudden, I, I got to go. And so I still have my pack on. They took their packs off, but I still have my pack and all my harness on. So I'm checking the wind. And I realize all the wind from me is going right to them. <laughs> and so I bug out. I quietly slip out of that position. And then when I get further enough away, I kind of double time it. I'm just heading back, getting back far enough so the crosswind won't affect their hunting. It'll be behind them. But as I'm double timing it, I'm done. I got to go. And so I stop, whip off my pack, whip off my bino harness, find a log, squat over it. As I'm doing that, looking around for trail cams. You know, you don't know who's watching out there. And so I take care of my business. And then after it's done, and I'm very relieved that it's done, that again, never happened to me before. I put everything, I get my bino harness on, my pack on, and then I quietly slip back up into position. And oddly, amazingly, we never saw any elk the rest of that day. And I don't know why, that's just a coincidence, I'm sure. Or maybe I didn't get far enough back, but I never confessed that to Jesse. So you're not going to tell him, right, Jake? Yeah, I wouldn't tell him that story. But anyway, yeah, we didn't see any elk that day. But that's not usually the way, okay? That was just one time out of all the hunting I did. All right. So Saul gets there. He's got his men, his troops, his 3,000 Delta Force. And all of a sudden, right when they're getting down to business, because he's got to be right in this area, Saul has to go. He sees a cave, and because he's the king, he's like, I got the cave, because he wants privacy. He goes in there to relieve himself. While he's in there, ironically or providentially, he's in the very cave that David and 600 of his men are hiding back in the recesses of this cave. And David's men are like, this is it. They're whispering to him, this is it. God's, God said you would be king and now you got him. I mean, you can kill him. He has no protection. He couldn't be more vulnerable. Ever feel that? Yeah. Couldn't be more vulnerable. He says, this is God's will. This is the open door. This is the opportunity. This is what we've been waiting for. This is the end of our wait. We could come out of hiding. Everything's going to be better. And David says, no. No. I'm not going to take matters into my own hands. I'm not going to kill the person that God made king. I will not lift my hand against God's anointed. And his men are like, you got to be kidding me. David slips up to Saul without Saul knowing. Saul's either wearing his robe hiked up or he's laid his robe right next to him. 
pulls out a knife. He cuts the corner of Saul's robe off. And then Saul finishes up, doesn't know anything about that, leaves the cave. And then David feels guilty. David feels guilty. He didn't kill him, but just cutting off the corner of his robe, he's feeling guilty. So then David does the unheard of. David follows Saul out of the cave. And then he says these profound words to Saul that I think we should read. And I just want you to catch something, though, here. David is committed to waiting for God's timing without taking matters into his own hands. He will not kill who God made king. God's going to have to do that. David understands. He wants to be king. He has to be a follower first. He's a loyal follower of Saul, even though Saul's trying to kill him. Don't ever expect God to grant you authority or leadership if you are unwilling to submit and follow. Because that's part of it. That's what trains you for leadership. 1 Samuel 24, 8. Now afterward, David arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, saying, My Lord the king! And when Saul looked around behind him, David bowed with his face to the ground and prostrated himself, flat on his face. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men, saying, Behold, David seeks to harm you? Behold, this day your eyes have seen that the Lord has given you today into my hand in the cave. And some said to kill you, but my eye had pity on you. And I said, I will not stretch out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. Now, my father, see, this is just a way of referring to Saul. Now, my father, see, indeed, see the edge of your robe in my hand. For in that I cut off the edge of your robe and did not kill you, know and perceive that there is no evil or rebellion in my hands. And I have not sinned against you, though you are lying in wait for my life to take it. And this is showing David's trust in God. He continues, verse 12. May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge me on you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancient says, out of wickedness comes forth wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? Whom are you pursuing? A dead dog? A single flea? The Lord therefore judge and decide between you and me, and may he see and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. David has learned to surrender to authority and surrender his fears to God and trusting more fully. Next verse, when David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, is this your voice, my son David? Then Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, you are more righteous than I, for you've dealt well with me while I've dealt wickedly with you. You have declared today that you've done good to me, that the Lord delivered me into your hand, and yet you did not kill me. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safely? May the Lord therefore reward you with good in return for what you've done to me this day. Now behold, I know that you will surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hand. So now swear to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants after me and that you will not destroy my name from my father's household. 
David swore to Saul. And David went, and I'm sorry, and Saul went to his home, but David and his men went up, back up, to the stronghold. So here Saul says, hey, you're better than me. I get it. We're good. I'm not going to kill you. Just don't kill. When, when you become king, just don't kill my family. David says, I won't. And then Saul goes, but then does David go to a city? No, where does David go? Back to the stronghold. Why? Because Saul's insane. Because he didn't know what Saul's going to do. Saul's already done this before. They, David and his men, they go, they don't trust Saul. He's, he's, he's nuts. He's jealous, insecure, paranoid, disobedient, and can't be trusted. And so David continues waiting. And God continues to prepare him for the good he has in store and promise to David. And the whole time he's waiting, there's always a reason. Just like when you and I wait for something good that God's promised. While we're waiting, there's always a reason. And often, it's to prepare us for God's good things in our life. We're kind of long today. I'd like you to stand and we'll close in prayer. Next Sunday, come back. We're going to continue to study the life of David, the man whom God says is after his own heart. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word and the truth that it gives us. And Lord, help us to follow you. God, we as, as followers, believers in you, we want to have a heart like David, a heart for you, wanting your things more than our things. Help us with that. And Father, for any who are not followers, Lord, our friends, our family, our neighbors who might be here with us today, Father, we ask that you would help them to come back or learn more about you and, Lord, that they would feel your tug on their heart to come to know you. Lord, we thank you for the life of David. His life is the lifeline for us. He's the line from which the Messiah comes, Jesus who takes care of all of our sin. God, thank you. In Christ's name we pray, amen.